<laughs> Guys, I can't fucking wait to see that movie. Yeah! I'm Helen. I'm Miss Sinclair. And I'm Edison. And this week, we are bringing you a very special feature. Oh, yes. yes. We're going to play a fun little game of Mary Fuck Kill. I cannot wait to watch this movie again. It's just so fucking weird. We're about to hit the dance floor at Jackrabbit Slims because we've got that Saturday night fever, baby. I loved this movie too. <laughs> it was so ridiculous. I just pray that Green Book doesn't win best. Oh picture. god, I know. That- <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Talk Movie to Me, a weekly podcast where we discuss a movie we've all seen, our weekend entertainment, and an artist whose career we'd like to put in focus. I'm Helen. I'm Miss Sinclair. And I'm Edison, and we know that you've missed us, missed us terribly. We have had a little bit of a winter hiatus. But we're back, y'all. Why? Because it's Oscar season. Mm -hmm. The strangest (laughs) Oscar season in my memory. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, when have the Oscars ever been at the end of April? Never. Literally never. It'll be interesting. (laughs) I I just hope that they do a better job than the Globes, but... Well, yeah, so... The Golden Globes are awful, and I know we've been gone for a few weeks, but if you're a Patreon member, you actually did get a special glam episode uh, that we Mm -hmm. released in March. So, I mean, if you've really missed us and you're not a Patreon member, I suggest becoming one, and you you have a few extra episodes that you could access. Exactly. And speaking of the Oscars, this week's film is nominated for six of them this year, including Best Picture. And that film is Minari, written and directed by Lee Isaac Chung. Minari takes us back to the 1980s and into the heart of America, the bucolic landscape of the Ozark farmlands. Here we meet Korean-American Jacob, played by Steven Yun, who has moved his family from California to Arkansas in pursuit of his vision of the American dream. Here on this plot of fertile land, Jacob endeavors to start a farm that will grow Korean produce for the growing population of Korean immigrants coming to America. But his wife, Monica, played by Yeri Han, is not so sure. She liked their life in California, and she's struggling to see the promise of Jacob's vision here in this rural backwater, so isolated amongst the dirt roads, hay bales, endless fields. Monica is also worried about the health of their young, American-born son, David, adorable young actor, Alan Kim. He has a heart murmur and could basically drop dead at any moment. Their daughter, Anne, played by Noelle Cho, struggles as she sees the tension between her parents growing. When Monica's mother, Sunja, the brilliant Yu Hong Yoon, arrives to help with the kids in the house, her Korean perspective challenges the family to think about what it means to assimilate into this new world. Minari asks the questions... What does it mean to be an American, and who gets to define the American dream? First impression, Helen. Yeah, my first impression was, uh uh-oh, this might make me cry. (laughs) (laughs) I got a sense of like, ooh, this feels ripe for tears. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) Edison? My first impression is, you know, we see this family arriving on this plot of land and it's so beautiful and the light just like dapples in the green fields. And I'm really excited for what's going to come. But I agree with you, Helen. I get a sense because of the beautiful musical score that it may be a bit of a tearjerker. Sinclair? First impressions for me, I'm really loving the meditative landscapes and the film's visual aesthetics. I can feel the breeze and the fresh air while watching this, and it allows you to really experience the hope that this family is feeling while they're trying to start a new life in this new setting. The film starts out with the hope of the American dream, and you can really feel that. And the film presents itself to us in the opening with the, with that idea in mind and i was also thinking oh my goodness little david is so adorable yeah. <laughs> oh my god so the most yeah. adorable kid mm-hmm. truly okay well do we want to start with storytelling yeah let's get into the storytelling i don't know if either one of you read about lee isaac chung's inspiration for this film no actually Mm-mm. let me enlighten you So he wrote a piece for the Los Angeles Times talking about how he he came up with the idea for the screenplay. It's a short piece, but it's it's so insightful. Maybe we can even link it in our 
on our website. I love that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we'll put that in the notes on the website for this episode. But he talks about how he, you know, had had made some films, but he was getting to a point in his life where he thought he needed a more stable job and he was about to start a full-time teaching job and had time to write one last screenplay, basically. And he sat in this coffee shop where he would always write and he found like that his previous formulas or inspirations weren't really doing it for him and he just sat there and opened up his mind basically and was like, I'm just going to wait for something to pop into my head. And two words came into his head, and it was Willa Cather, who is a novelist, Hmm. an American novelist that he'd never read before. So it's this weird sort of divine, like, message he he received. Yeah. And so he, he researched her and read one of her books and thought it was it was beautiful basically she had written about a lot of urban settings and was trying to emulate Henry James and some of these other novelists that would write more urban stories but that that wasn't really her background that wasn't her story to tell and when she finally just decided to tell her own story that was a more rural story she says life began for me when I ceased to admire and began to remember Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. And that's basically what Lee Isaac Chung did with this story. He he took those words and said, I'm going to write about my experience, mm-hmm. uh, th- this rural experience, because this is a somewhat autobiographical story on his part. And so he just sat down and started writing memories from his childhood and wrote down about 80 memories and then was able to construct a narrative from that and write this beautiful screenplay. I, I think that that's such a beautiful story about creativity mm-hmm. yeah. and how artists work and create and where inspiration comes from. Because as a creative person, there are those times where you get a sign or mm-hmm. you come across something that is so poignant and it leads you down a completely different path that you can't help but feel like that came from somewhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that, That's some kind of message from something or somewhere. And I just think that's so cool. I didn't know that about this particular story. I didn't know that it was autobiographical kind of in nature, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't Mm -hmm. surprise me at all because I feel like there's such a deep, 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 deep authenticity to the storytelling of this film that I just think would be really difficult to create if you hadn't experienced it in some way, right? Yeah. Yeah, I thought this movie was really wonderful i think you know we've had a couple of films this year this one first cow that are kind of about these quiet perspectives on the american dream and Mm. people kind of coming from a struggling background to forge their own path and about what like family means and relationships and stuff and Mm. they're not big showy films they're like quiet but like brimming with truth and messages and this film is so thematically rich and so poignant in in many, many ways. I thought it was wonderful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I actually felt that David was the protagonist in this. Mm -hmm. We Mm -hmm. see most of the film through him, where going into it, I actually thought that it would have been more through Jacob's point of view, the father. But it being a representation of Lee Isaac's Chung's childhood in in a mm-hmm. lot of ways it does end up making a lot of sense following David through the majority of the film for sure well I think yeah. that it's that theme of assimilation and that tension between the old world and the new that a f- first generation kid you know David's the only one in this family that was born in America mm-hmm. that is experiencing that right mm-hmm. when the grandmother arrives she kind of represents the resistance to that assimilation right like America's this melting pot. It's all meant to come together into this uniform whole. And I think immigrants are very wary of this, right? Because they lose something in that exchange. Whatever you might gain from the American dream, you're losing something. And we have been having so many conversations about that over the past year, right? About America and who the system benefits, etc. And so we see that struggle between her, the grandmother and young David, 
who mm. at first doesn't even know, you know, like he says, you're not a real grandma. <laughs> um, because yeah. she doesn't behave like the white grandmothers that he would have seen, you know, on cartoons or TVs or movies or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I just think that tension is is just kind of cool. I agree with you, Sinclair. I felt like he was the the protagonist of this. He's who we're seeing this mm-hmm. from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the main thing I really appreciated about the storytelling in this film is how it subverted Asian stereotypes throughout mm-hmm. a lot of this film, <laughs> I actually mm-hmm. found. And this is a conversation that, that's really important right now. And Asian people yeah. have been subjected to constant misrepresentation and stereotypes in film and TV. Mm-hmm. And I felt that this film really challenged that. Mm-hmm. And I felt like it was because it was a director that was telling a story he experienced, like we were talking about before. And these stories end up being really authentic when they're coming from directors and writers who have experienced them. Just certain things with the characters, their actions in this film. The grandma is a good example. Generally in film, you think of Asian grandmothers being portrayed as very strict, matriarchal, very traditional and, and judgmental. Mm-hmm. in a way and I was expecting that when the grandma right. was coming and the way that Monica is scurrying around the house and she's tidying and she's fussing with David and Anne it leads us as audiences to think that she's actually preparing for a judgmental woman to enter mm-hmm. their home and that's not what happens at all no she's the furthest mm-hmm. from that and it it ends up being the furthest from what the film is setting you up to think yeah. and when monica sees her mother come in it's my favorite moment in the film monica tears up at the sight of grandma coming in mm-hmm. and we immediately see their history and their relationship in that moment and we realize that all the fussing she's doing is because she wants to impress her mother because she loves her so much. Mm-hmm. And she wants her mom to know she's okay. And I just thought that was really interesting because what we've seen before in film, I was expecting this this stern, <laughs> yeah. judgmental Asian woman to walk in. And right. this movie gives you a character that completely changes your perspective and your expectation. And... Also, Monica in this Mm. film, a lot of movies portray Asian women with this awful stereotype of being giggly and passive. Docile. Docile. Subservient. Mm. And Monica is not that in this film. She's strong and she's complex. She challenges Jacob. She she -hmm. threatens to leave him. She wants to support him, but she's it's it she doesn't feel it's the right thing to do with the way that it's going. And she's in no way docile in this film at all. And yeah, I just yeah. I just felt like this film was really challenging those those stereotypes that we see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it's a very rich portrayal of family. Yeah, for it, sure. Right, mm-hmm. and and even just sort of the ideas of of community, and we see this a lot with how religion is presented in this movie, and how yeah. you know they go to church. I get the uh, got the impression not so much to worship but to meet people mm-hmm. <laughs> to have a try and build a community in this town and there there are a lot of different really interesting perspectives on religion like you know Monica puts a hundred dollar bill in the collection basket and the grandma immediately takes it out <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah I think that religion was just one element that was a conversation about faith and I think that really this film, as a whole was a conversation about faith, not just religious faith, where we had a lot of yeah. that, you know, with Paul carrying his cross up the road. Yeah, geez. But also <laughs> the faith that they all had to have with each other, the faith that Jacob mm. had to have in his dream, the faith that Monica mm. had in him, but was really being challenged. The They all are faced with this dilemma of, do they have this faith in mm. whatever it is that they are holding on to? And can, is it, how shakable is it but mm-hmm. i love at the end how when it all comes down to it faith and family and that that particular those particular relationships is the strongest thing right yeah mm-hmm. yeah i just i really need to talk about the friendship between david and grandma yes that was just 
some of my favorite moments of the film. I, I love that, you know, she wasn't David's expectation of what a stereotypical grandma should be. She didn't bake. She actually was quite free spirited totally. <laughs> in a lot of ways. She didn't cook. She likes to play cards. You know, she likes to run around in the field and get dirty. And I love the fact that David doesn't like her <laughs> right away. Yeah. There's a, there's an end. It's almost like grandma respects David for not mm. loving her right away and mm-hmm. waiting for that bond to actually develop naturally and then both accepting each other for who they really are. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah, that friendship's so lovely. It was so fun to watch unfold in this film. And it just happened so naturally and comically and and tenderly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I mean, to tie it in with the title of the film, Minari. Minari is a an herb that the grandma plants by their little stream that, that they're not supposed to go to because they're snakes. And it's an herb that just grows ferociously. And she says at one point, rich or poor, anyone can enjoy it and be healthy. And to me, it it just speaks to that idea of like, there are beautiful things in the world that you don't have to pay for, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that you can enjoy. And Mm -hmm. they are there for you if you choose to see them and take, take advantage of them being there. And I thought that that was, that's a really lovely message to, sort of counteract the message of the American dream. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's get into the performances because I think there were some standouts here. Um, Steven Yeun is nominated for uh, Best Actor at the Oscars. He's Jacob, mm-hmm. of course. And Yoo Jung Yoon is nominated for Best Supporting Actress as Grandma Sunja. Let's start with Steven Yeun as Jacob. I thought that he was really great as Jacob, but I... W- Coming into this film, knowing that he was nominated for Best Lead Actor, I was mm-hmm. expecting his role to be more, mm. more, more yeah. prominent, yeah. more whatever. I didn't actually feel like it was, like he was great, but it, I'll be honest, it wasn't an Oscar-worthy performance for me, lead actor performance. He was mm-hmm. certainly compelling in every moment, but I didn't really think that there was that much. I actually thought Yeri Han as Monica had a lot more moments. Yeah. I thought she was wonderful. Yes, I think liked him but I thought that his performance was actually elevated in scenes with her yeah, yeah because she's actually my favorite performance in this film mm. I she was remarkable. thought she was incredible I cannot believe that Glenn Close has a nomination for Hillbilly Elegy <laughs> I and Mary Han doesn't it. have one for oh this film God. I think it's that's a complete travesty she was so wonderful in this film she was powerful it's a really Mm -hmm. underrated performance as well Mm -hmm. and yeah I like I was saying before like she has my favorite moment in this film where she sees Mm -hmm. her her mother that reaction just it got me I thought that she was just so beautiful yeah my favorite was Alan Kim I have you know I definitely have a soft spot for cute precocious kids in film like I was relating this to Florida Project a little bit and Brooklyn Prince's performance in that mm-hmm. he was he was reminding me a little bit of her and I thought he was just adorable and so natural and I don't know if you guys saw but he won best young performer oh at my the god Critics I Choice saw Awards. that I can't even I his acceptance speech if you have not <sighs> listeners if you haven't watched this please google it it's I, I tried to watch it again today. I had to stop because I was I was like, I will break down into sobs if I watch this again. It's so it's, perfect. It is so adorable. He's Pure. This, you know, he's wearing his tuxedo and he just start. He's like, oh, oh my goodness, I'm starting to cry. And it's just like <laughs> truly the cute. It's it's I can't I don't think I can watch it. It's just too, it's overwhelmingly precious and pure. <laughs> like, he was yeah. so wonderful. And like he kind of mm. carried the film in a way. Yeah. And and did it really well but like his partner in crime uh <laughs> Yoo Jung Yoon mm. as grandma yeah. she was probably my favorite performance um yeah she was Them just so fun wonderful and vibrant and playful yeah. and dynamic and just everything but also those scenes near the end you know when after she has her stroke Mm -hmm. and then that pain on her face when she realizes she started the fire like she was also incredible in those scenes Mm -hmm. I thought it was a really fantastic performance too Mm -hmm. that offered a lot of dynamism 
Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I was living for grandma. I knew it. I knew as soon as I saw her watching wrestling, I was like, oh, my God, (laughs) this is for Sinclair. But all all very, 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 very strong, like a really strong cast overall, for sure. Yeah. In terms of technical elements to this film, I love the score. Me too. By Emile Mossery. Oh, my God. It it has such angelic wonder. Yes. Like you're. Mm to go back to sort of the religious themes of this film, like it feels like the sound that angels make when they're looking down on earth. Like it's gorgeous. I was listening to it again today and I, I want to just put that on like a a meditation playlist or something. It's, it's really stunning. And he also composed the music for old Dolio or whatever the hell the movie was called. (laughs) Kajillionaire. Kajillionaire. Yeah. Old Dolio. Isn't that fun? Yeah. And then the one other thing for me, Lachlan Milne, who did the cinematography, I mm-hmm. thought was brilliant. I've read a lot of things comparing it to like Terrence Malick in terms of the landscapes yeah. and the lighting, and that's very apt. I thought it was yeah. really poetic and beautiful, yeah. the lighting and the, the landscape shots. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, none of the technical elements overshadowed the storytelling, which I thought was really important because yeah. this mm-hmm. is a slice of life film. So other elements can't be too over the top. They all have yeah. to work together. And it's important that the technical elements, you know, don't overshadow the the storytelling being very yeah. nuanced. And mm-hmm. I thought that was really great. Yeah. The score and the, the cinematography worked really, really well with the story. Mm. Okay. So what's the last word on Minari? Minari is a really beautiful, soulful film that I really look forward to watching again and seeing what happens at the Oscars. It's got six nominations, so we shall see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, the last word, I think this is a film that I would recommend to pretty much anyone. And I think yeah. that everybody is going to enjoy it and get something, take something away from it. I thought it was a really beautiful, authentic honest film that had deep deep rich thematic meaning and messages and i just think it's an absolute must watch i loved it one of my favorites of the year for sure Mm -hmm. yeah i also really loved minari and i think it's actually a really important film right now and it's a beautiful poignant slice of life film and it gives you a really great glimpse into this family and it also tugs on your heartstrings so Mm -hmm. definitely worth the watch Each week, we challenge ourselves to watch films that fit a particular theme. This week's theme is Living the Dream. This is our week in entertainment. Um, who wants to go first? How about Sinclair? You go first. Helen? Yeah. No, Sinclair. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> I always go first. That's true. I actually watched The Neon Demon. Oh. From 2016, okay. directed by Nicholas Winding Refn. Mm-hmm. Stars Elle Fanning, Jenna Malone, Christina Hendricks, Keanu Reeves. A lot of celebs in this one. A bit star-studded, for sure. Mm -hmm. This film is about a young, aspiring model named Jessie, played by Elle Fanning, who goes to L.A. to pursue her dream and gets quote-unquote devoured lack of a better word (laughs) by the evils of the fashion industry. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if you're familiar with Nicholas Winding Refn, you really need to be in the mood mm-hmm. for his films. They tend to not have a lot of dialogue. They're very visually striking. They have a lot of symbolism, but they're also very vague. Or they can just hit you right over the head with a lot of violence and gore. So he, he definitely is a mood. So I actually had been putting this one off for a while because I, I was like, I just need to be feeling it yeah, <laughs> in order fair. to watch it. I actually really enjoyed this, and I enjoyed it Mm -hmm. more than I should have, I guess, (laughs) to be honest. Mm -hmm. I just really, really ate up these visuals. It's very Mm -hmm. glittery. It's very dark. It's very menacing. It's bright. It it sparkles. It's bloody. It's provocative. I don't know if you guys have seen any clips from this film or any I actually watched this film, but I didn't finish it because i didn't like it you didn't like it Mm. and i very rarely turn a film off but i was like "Mm." Mm -hmm. well 
it's weird because I think that's that's fair to say in a lot of ways. Hence why I was like, I think I liked this more than I should have. Well, it may. I you also know? recognize that but, it, you're right. It is a mood, and I may just yeah. not have been in the mood. Yeah, but it, it, to me, it really felt like the original Suspiria meets the fashion industry. Mm. Like, there's very witchy vibes throughout this film. Elle Fanning, she is very much a sacrificial lamb mm. in this film. And she she's so lovely. She looks like an actual Disney princess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she's just She just looks pure and innocent and very naive. And she gets deeper and deeper into this fashion industry. Mm-hmm. And we start, start to see more of a pro- provocative side to her. And she gets mixed up with Jenna Malone and a bunch of models. Uh, Jenna Malone would be a witch. Absolutely. She's so creepy. (laughs) (laughs) But she plays this makeup artist. Mm. And yeah, I mean, on the surface, this movie is very much about the fashion industry being very competitive and cutthroat. And there's a ton of fashion industry tropes in this and Mm -hmm. everything that you would suspect. But underneath, there's very, very vague, witchy, coveny demon conjuring undertones so you see her start to kind of become this this neon demon there's some sort of rich ritual going on or something it's just not said like it's just so so vague well spoiler alert i don't know if you care or not edison you probably won't attempt to watch it again but at the end they kill her l fanning and they devour her they like oh. bathe in her blood, like Elizabeth Bathory style. Like wow. they bathe in her like youth and beauty. Ooh, I'm so into they this. they actually devour her. <laughs> I want to watch this. So you know, it's this this mix of you know this gorgeous fashion and glitter and sparkle, but it becomes this blood soaked fever dream by the end. I'm for sure this. like there's a some good dialogue in the film where one of the models sarah says to jesse what does it feel like and jesse says what do you mean and sarah says to walk into a room and it's like the middle of winter and you're the sun and jesse mm. says it's everything <laughs> yeah but i yeah i mean i like this in terms of you know living the dream you know what do you do when the dream becomes a nightmare right. <laughs> reality mm-hmm. sets in you know there's there's the dream and then there's actually living the dream you know you're flying yeah. high and then you get eaten by jenna malone yeah <laughs> pretty standard what a way to go yeah <laughs> yeah nice okay who's next i'll go okay All right, so my film this week is a musical biopic from 2019 that celebrates the life of Elton John. Mm -hmm. It is, of course, Rocket Man. Yes, well, speaking of glitter and sparkles, (laughs) Rocket Man. Directed by Dexter Fletcher and starring Taron Egerton as Elton John. Rocketman tracks Elton's journey from bespectacled, turtleneck-wearing pub pianist to glittery peacock, legendary showman, global superstar. And as his career explodes into the highest stratosphere, his life spirals as he struggles with his addictions to drugs, drink, sex, and shopping. Okay, but if ever there was someone who embodied the theme of living the dream, it has to be Sir Elton John. Mm-hmm. One of the most famously extravagant rock stars we have ever had in our popular culture. Mm-hmm. Have you both watched this already? I've seen this, yeah. I have not, actually. I liked this one better than Bohemian Rhapsody. Mm. They were very different. I very Totally different, different yeah. ways of telling the story. It's interesting. Yeah, Rocket Man follows right in the footsteps of that Queen biopic, Bohemian Rhapsody, which was hugely mm-hmm. successful. And also right now in pre-production, we have I Want to Dance with Somebody, which is the Whitney Houston one, Mm -hmm. also written by Anthony McCartan, who wrote the Queen one. And Rocketman was also hugely successful. It made almost $200 million at the box office. And so clearly there's a desire to see 
these stories of like epic music stars brought to life yeah. like this. But I think that it's cool to see those two films, Bohemian Rhapsody and this, so close together because they were employed totally different mechanisms of of storytelling and incorporating mm-hmm. the music of these stars into the film, right? Mm-hmm. With this one, the way it's filmed is like, it's very surreal. It's almost like magic Mm -hmm. realism. There's like scenes where he's like floating up into the air and flying. And there's kind of like dream sequences that are maybe meant to conjure a bit of like him being, you know, in drugs and whatever. But also happens when he's not necessarily super high. It's very across the universe. It's mm, very across yeah. the universe. It is totally very that. Yes, absolutely. And I think it really worked in this. Yeah. I have always been a fan of Elton John. I ha- I've seen Elton John perform before. He obviously has a ton of great songs, but I haven't been it's like watching this film was a reminder of just like holy frig, mm-hmm. like so many. Yeah. I think with those costumes too, having Ooh. the film be be more surreal was the right choice because it's mm-hmm. the, it was the best way to let those outfits shine. Ab- <laughs> and <brightly>. literally <laughs> and figuratively shine. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so Taron Edgerton plays him and I like him. I like him a lot. I liked him in Kingsman. He was great there. And I think he did a really, really commendable job as Elton. Like t- fully committed. His performance was great. And he does his own singing in this. And it's... Oh, wow. It's not exactly like an imitation of Elton John, but it kind of is. It's an approximation, and it's a, a really good job. I thought I was mm. impressed. Jamie Bell is also in it. He plays Bernie Topin, who has been Elton John's like writing partner and creative collaborator for basically ever. And mm-hmm. I loved their relationship. Their relationship is the heart of this movie. And Jamie mm. Bell is wonderful in everything. He just has such a warmth and like soul to his performance Mm -hmm. and I love the way that their relationship happens there's this one scene where Bernie has just written your song the lyrics Mm -hmm. right he Mm -hmm. doesn't come up with the music and then he hands Elton the page of the lyrics and Elton sits down to try and craft the melody and Bernie goes into the bathroom to brush his teeth and like Elton is on the piano and just like kind of in an instant is like and like comes up with the whole thing and you can see Bernie in the bathroom like hearing this and being in total awe of that particular creative process Mm. and it completely filled with emotion at like seeing his words come to life hearing his words come to life in such a beautiful way and I thought that was just such a it just captured that dynamic between songwriter and like performer in a way that I had never really seen before. And I loved it. Loved, loved, loved it. Overall, I will say I really enjoyed this movie. I don't know why it took me so long to watch it. Helen, you really should check out Rocket Man. It's great. Yeah, I will. Okay, uh, Helen, what did you pick? Mm, last but not least. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine this. You're a teenage dude. Good looking dude. Okay. You just graduated high school. You live in Dallas. You get accepted to a college in L.A. You move out to L.A. You enter res. There's tons of parties. There's hot girls everywhere. Edison, imagine hot guys. Mm -hmm. And you're just you're living the dream, right? Mm -hmm. Wrong. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the movie that I'm doing this week is called Shithouse. Oh, yeah. I've heard of this one. What? Yeah. I haven't. So it's very, very, very indie. But I'm going to tell you all about it. So this is written, directed, and starring Cooper Rafe. It also stars Dylan Galela, who you may recognize from The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. That's what I recognized her from. And Amy Landecker is in this film as well. Shithouse centers around Alex, a freshman at a college in L.A. who would rather call his mom or talk to his stuffed animal than go to parties and hook up with chicks. He's incredibly homesick. He has zero friends and is generally having a terrible time until he goes to a party at Shithouse quote-unquote, and makes friends with his RA, Maggie. So I first heard about this film on a podcast because it won the best narrative feature at South by Southwest last year. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and it sort of became this 
came out of nowhere hit at South by Southwest, but it was, you know, last year obviously was weird and South by Southwest didn't actually happen, but they still adjudicated the films. And it is now on Netflix. And so I had heard about it on this podcast. They were raving about it. And then I saw it pop up and I was like, oh, I want to check this out. And the reason why I incorporated this into this segment is more of a meta reason. It's not so much that this film showcases someone living the dream, but this is my dream to write, direct, and star in a film that wins Best Narrative Feature at South by Southwest. Like, I would die. (laughs) (laughs) So sort of the journey that of the making of this film, I find incredibly inspiring and really interesting. And the film itself, I really, really liked. So it kind of, this movie sets itself up to be, like, you look at the poster and you think, oh, this is like another super bad. This is some sort of like buddy Mm -hmm. high school slash college buddy comedy. And it's completely not that at all. And the main character, Alex, is, you know, not your average film freshman dude just trying to get drunk and hook up with chicks. Like, he's very vulnerable and sensitive and and really really sweet and is having like a super tough time integrating himself into this new life in college and this this film has quiet confidence to it Mm. that i really appreciated and according to wikipedia the budget for this movie was fifteen thousand dollars wow yeah fifteen thousand dollars that's nothing well that's inspiring in and of itself right yeah and so Cooper Rafe, you know, makes this film on an incredibly micro budget, has a screener of it. He decides to tweet it out to uh, Jay Duplass and say, like, haha, bet you won't watch this. Jay watches it and decides that he's going to mentor Cooper Rafe now. Wow, that's so cool. <laughs> like, if that's Man, not if you build it, they will come. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, this, I mean, it's definitely a first feature. Like, there are elements to this movie that are a little clunky and amateur. But all in all, I I really like this guy's vision and, like, gusto. Um, And I like the story that he was telling. It It was a different way to see this male character, this type of male character. And it's inspirational as a filmmaker and an actor to see somebody on a very, very small budget come out and make this feature and have it take off in this way mm-hmm. that's really cool weren't they yeah, having yeah. a hard time with the name yes and the title is is not good it's not reflective of the film and they, they, they yeah. were podcasts that couldn't say the movie's name so they were trying yeah. to review the film but like couldn't say yeah the full yeah. name even on netflix it's like shithouse but it's s and then it's like dollar sign, yeah, number yeah, sign. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like it doesn't say like, shit. Like young people fucking that one. Yeah, yeah. Oh, where it's it's like asterisks. Yeah. Well, we swear on this podcast. So. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> the shit house here, y'all. Yeah. <laughs> no, no problem for us. I I recommend if you're someone who likes indie film, which I think a lot of our listeners are, to check this out. It is on Netflix right now and. Just see what the young up and coming filmmakers of today are making. For fifteen grand. Light that fire yeah. under your ass, people. Yeah. <laughs> Go make a movie. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. So now it's time for our In Focus segment. Each week we pick an artist and take a look at their filmography and break down the projects and moments that made them the fascinating creatives that they are today. All right, film lovers, it's after (laughs) sunset and there's a sexy breeze a-blowing. The smooth sound of the guitar fills our ears while we head down a dusty highway that leads us straight to the bright neon lights of the titty twister. (laughs) Little do we know, we are about to embark on a filmography of an actress that is so sexy, so seductive, that 54 fools would rush into the wild, wild west just to catch a glimpse of this python-wearing queen of the night. But even though this enchantress has a beauty that spans across the universe, she has a depth and relatability 
that makes Adam Sandler think that somehow her playing his wife in a movie is believable. <laughs> even though it's not. So, <laughs> so let's take our seats because the lights are dimming and the curtains are parting and dusk draws near. Let's hope we live to see dawn because we are about to put the show-stopping filmography of Santanico Pandemonium herself, <laughs> Selma Hayek, in focus. Woo-woo! <laughs> that was yes. great. <laughs> so we've broken Selma Hayek's career down into her most defining moments in movies, and we had to decide what the movie was that put her career on the map. And that movie is none other than Desperado from 1995, directed by Robert Rodriguez. This was Robert Rodriguez's follow-up to El Mariachi. This is the Mm -hmm. second film in his Mexico trilogy, starring Antonio Banderas as El Mariachi, Uh Selma Hayek, Cheech Marin is in this, Danny Trejo, Quentin Tarantino, little Steve Buscemi in here as well. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And it's about former musician and gunslinger El Mariachi arriving in a small Mexican border town after being away for a long time. His past quickly catches up to him, and he soon gets entangled with the local drug kingpin, Bucho, and his gang. Mm-hmm. So, this film... Okay, I saw this film when it first came out, and I never have seen it since. Mm-hmm. And then I watched it yesterday, mm-hmm. and I loved it. Yeah. I thought this yeah, movie was fun. so much better than I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be kind of garbage. I don't know why, <laughs> but it was really, really fun. It was mm. it was exactly what like I was hoping at the highest hopes that it might be. Yeah, I don't know. I was I was just so pleasantly surprised by this movie, and like yeah. oh, Sinclair, you look so puzzled. Yeah, this movie's ridiculous. You did not like it at all? It's, it's well, I mean, I like it because it's absolutely ridiculous. Oh, it is completely it is absurd. definitely ridiculous. I don't think it's a good movie. Oh, no, I disagree. I think it's a good movie. At all. I mean, I watched it yesterday as well after the film that I also was watching for our big three, which we'll get to in a little bit. So watching this movie after watching that movie was a breath of fresh air. Um, but... I yeah I I thought it was fun. Um, I was not expecting that naked sex scene, that steamy n- nudity. Really, uh, I don't know. I was like, you can't have Salma Hayek and Antonio Banderas in a film as lovers and not give us that. The audience well, needs it. <laughs> I I. I I could see a sex scene, but I was like, oh, there's like nudity in this film. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, that I didn't see coming. I was like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> that sex scene is like softcore porn from yeah. the 90s Cinemax <laughs> channel. It, there's yeah. so many candles. So many candles. A million candles. I love Sexy it. Sexy guitar and yeah. just licking hands running through dark <laughs> luscious hair. Like it's completely ridiculous. Yeah. And she's actually talked about how uncomfortable she was doing that scene. Aww. She Ugh. found it to be really traumatic and not because it was with Antonio Banderas and had nothing to do with Robert Rodriguez. She was just very nervous and very oh, shy yeah. and she felt really weird ex- exposing herself and knowing mm. her parents were going to be watching this. Mm. I have to say this film has the best entrance for her. It's such a great introduction oh, to Selma <laughs> Hayek. I love that she's walking down the street and I, uh, uh, wa- uh, watching her you're like, wow, that woman is so beautiful and as you have that thought two cars actually crash into each other (laughs) so good and there's this moment where she locks eyes with antonio banderas and it's like witnessing sexy merging with more sexy yeah (laughs) Yeah. it's like this weird sexy camaraderie that they have (laughs) there's just so much sexy going on in this this movie but it was definitely like a big, it was a, a surprising hit, a success. Mm-hmm. And it it's kind of the film that also helped make Antonio Banderas a big American star. And definitely was the one that put Sam Hayek on the map. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, we had to narrow down Selma's big three. Mm-hmm. Edison, I think that you have number one. 
I do. So, like, obviously, From Dust Till Dawn, you know, came out just a couple years after Desperado, but we've talked about that before, and we'll talk about mm-hmm. it again throughout this episode. So mm-hmm. we wanted to kind of focus on some other ones. So first up on her big three is 54 from mm-hmm. 1998. So 54 is obviously about the famous nightclub, Studio 54, which was the absolute white-hot center of New York cool in the 70s. Studio 54, I think, is probably like the most famous nightclub of all time, Mm -hmm. right? Probably, yeah. It was really, really the center of everything. When you, We have so many visuals that pop into our mind and such a mixed crowd. It's the disco. It's like Truman Capote. It's Andy Warhol. It's Grace Jones. It's like piles and mountains of cocaine and sex and just yeah. <laughs> this whole mixed thing. But the whole idea of it was it's like, oh, where the only thing that's going to like get you in the door is you how cool you are, how hot you are, what your outfit is like or whatever. So it didn't matter if you were famous Mm. or if you were just some kid from Jersey. So this story really focuses on Ryan Felipe's character, um, Shane. He's from Jersey and he's just trying to make a name for himself. And he gets a gig as a bartender at Studio 54. Moves to Manhattan, shares an apartment with two other co-workers from there who are a couple, Greg and Anita. And so Greg is played by 90s teen film stalwart Brecklin Meyer, and <laughs> Anita is Salma Hayek. And again, Salma Hayek, just outrageously sexy, <laughs> like, it's, it's like foolish, it's, it is just unavoidable. But here's the thing, this film is like not good, right? <laughs> Well, I lo- I loved that. I loved fifty four and at ninety nine. So did I, but that's because we were like fourteen <laughs> or fifteen years old. Aww. It's it's not great. It's not like awful, but it's really not great. But Salma Hayek is easily the best thing in it, mm-hmm. and it's a small supporting role. But she's real. She actually plays mm-hmm. Anita as a real person with like a whole real backstory, and you can f- actually she's like present and real in way more than what the lines are giving her. And I just was watching this thinking, Frig, it's such a shame. Like, I feel like Hollywood did Salma dirty Mm. um, just by putting her in these movies because she could have brought so much more if given the opportunity, right? But it was a big one for Salma because she's definitely like one of the top billing in this movie. And it was a pretty moderate hit at the time. It was definitely like a teen thing that everybody saw, right? (laughs) Yeah. All right, what's next on the big three? So next, one year later, we've got Wild Wild West. The Wild Wild West. We bounce into the Wild Wild West. (sighs) From 1999, directed by Barry Sonnenfeld, starring Will Smith, Kevin Kline, Kenneth Branagh, and, of course, Sama Hayek. The description courtesy of IMDb. The two best special agents in the Wild West must save President Grant from the clutches of a diabolical, wheelchair-bound, steampunk-savvy Confederate scientist. (laughs) Uh, Bet on revenge for losing the Civil War. This movie's so bad. So bad. It's bad. It's really, it, but it was really it bad. was bad then, too. He, yeah, yeah, like even Will Smith openly talks about the regret of this film. The biggest oh, yeah, thing was really the it. music video that came out of it. That was the big hit. See, I I never saw this when it came out, but I remember it being in pop culture. Right. I think just because of the song, mm-hmm. but I didn't really have an opinion one way or another about it. I was just I knew it existed. I knew it was like a big film in some sense. I had no idea it was going to be as bad as it was. And as I started, you know, to get into it and go to watch it yesterday, I'm like, oh, it has 17% on Rotten Tomatoes. Mm -hmm. This is what I'm in for. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there, I mean, there are some entertaining moments that because it's so horrible. I mean, this movie would have benefited from way more Salma Hayek in it. I have to say she's not in it nearly enough as I think she should be. And I, I did enjoy watching her in the, like, saloon. I don't know how, the proper way to say this, but, like, the saloon prostitute attire. Yeah. <laughs> it was fun. Like, that was all really fun. The costuming was fun. And there are some quirky, fun moments in this in this movie. But all in all, it's, like, it's really, really, really bad. Although, it it, it did gross over $200 million. 
worldwide. Yeah, totally. It still was a a, a big like people saw it. It was a hit. Uh-huh. It's Will Smith in the nineties, mm-hmm. so it, it was yeah. big for Salma Hayek. Yeah. All right, Sinclair. What is number three? Number three is Frida from two thousand two. Mm-hmm. So this is this is nice because we're we're moving into a really really meaty role. Yeah, mm-hmm. for Selma in yeah. her career, Frida's directed by Julie Taymor. It's a biography of Mexican painter Frida Kahlo. Frida was very famous for her paintings that were very inspired by Mexican Mexican culture and politics. And I actually learned from this film that she was in a very severe trolley accident, and she was so badly injured they didn't know if she would ever walk again. And eventually she does heal, but a lot of her art was really inspired by chronic pain, which I did not know about her. And vaginas. And vaginas. (laughs) Very bold (laughs) paintings. (laughs) Yeah, this uh, this was interesting. She's a really interesting artist. And because her work is so striking and so colorful and so bold, I actually thought that Julie Tamar as a director was a mm. really amazing match. Mm. I love the style of her films. They're so breathtaking and mm. unique. And this film is just, it's so gorgeous to watch. There's these surrealist elements to it. And yeah, it's very, you know, across the universe. And, yes. and it really, really works mm. for this style of film matched with this this painter it's really great Selma Hayek is really wonderful in this and I always just thought of the unibrow (laughs) Selma Hayek with that very distinctive (laughs) unibrow Mm -hmm. but she's very bold she's she's fiery and she's she's breathtaking she actually looks like a painting in this Mm. however as beautiful as this film is and how great she is in in this film it's very tarnished by the harvey weinstein yeah stuff that she came out and spoke about and he really bullied her Mm -hmm. it was just a nightmare for her she was constantly trying to refuse his sexual advancements Uh. he threatened her he was demanding more sex scenes in the film to the point where she had a nervous breakdown during this production. Ashley Judd is also in this film who's also been vocal about his abuse. So they're both in this film. And yeah, it it really tarnishes the beauty of this film. And, Mm. you know, you watch it and you just think, oh, you know, here's a great role for her. She's working with a great director and she's wonderful in it and it's just completely <laughs> and that was her experience <laughs> that was her experience watching it's it it's so enraging yeah. fuck yeah. yeah but i really liked this film i liked watching it i loved watching her in it it was nominated for 6 oscars it won two it won mm-hmm. for best makeup and best score and she got a nomination for this for for yeah. leading actress this was a really really big role for her oh yeah and it's too bad that that was her experience making it yeah. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay, so I think Salma Hayek's most unforgettable pop culture moment is probably that dancing scene in From Dusk Till Dawn that you yeah. referenced in the <laughs> intro. She comes out in this cape with this big feather crown, and then, boom, some fire explodes on stage. Mm-hmm. Tito and Tarantula start playing their song after dark. <laughs> Salma drops the cape, and as it hits the floor, so do the jaws of every person watching this movie because <laughs> she's in some black lingerie, has a giant python writhing around her, and she, as always, is almost incomprehensibly sexy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She dances, it's all sensuality and hips and arch back and abs and her sultry eyes, and it's ridiculous. I'm gay as fuck, and I was still like, okay, girl, fair <laughs> enough. Like, <laughs> yeah. the yeah. scene goes on for four minutes, and of course includes her pouring oh, beer down God. her shin, and then as it drips from her feet, she well, shoves yes. them into Quentin Tarantino's mouth. Yes. And I mean... Okay. 
that's the writer taking advantage of being the writer. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> a little fantasy fulfillment there, Quentin. Yes. Yeah. But it is like this was a really like iconic moment for her yeah. on in her film presence, of course. And I think when people think Sama Hayek, that's probably one of the first things that pops into their head. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to bring up one other thing because I was like, okay, I want an outsider perspective. Like, so I asked my mom, I was like, mom, if I say Salma Hayek pop culture moment, what mm. comes to your mind? And she was like, oh, that's easy. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> what is it? And she's like, uh, the time that she breastfed another woman's child in Sierra Leone. And I was like, what? What? Oh, I remember this. Yes. So I looked it up. And in 2009, <laughs> she was on a humari- humanitarian trip to Sierra Leone. And... She was like visiting these starving children and she was told by one of the the people there that a lot of the women stopped breastfeeding within a short amount of time because mm. there's a stigma by, from the men about mm. having sex with a woman who's breastfeeding. And so male pressure causes women to not feed their babies for as long as they could, if they could. It's awful. Okay. Anyway, so in the midst of that, Salma Hayek is there and she was had her own kid and she was still breastfeeding her own child Mm. and there was a a little baby who was like hungry and the mother was like 15 saying i'm my baby is starving whatever and sama hayek grabbed that child right up and breastfed it whoa yeah i actually love that yeah and it was (laughs) like huge huge so badass it was huge news at the time and she like it was she she probably didn't expect it to be like global news but it was and um, she was asked about it after, and she said, yeah, her decision to do that was an attempt to diminish the stigma placed on women for breastfeeding. Mm. And that also, the idea of helping a child in this way had a long tradition in her family. So she told the story about her grandmother uh, in back in Mexico saving a starving baby of a stranger by breastfeeding the child, mm. too. Mm. And I just oh, thought wow. that was so cool. Yeah. Is your mom going to now be our resident pop culture contributor? Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) All right. What is the hidden gem, Sinclair? I watched a movie called Tale of Tales from 2015. It's directed by Matteo Garoni. And it has Selma Hayek, Vincent Cassell's in this. Toby Jones. John C. Riley. Toby Jones. As well. And... It's a really dark fairy tale movie. Oh. And okay, it has cool. like three intersecting dark fairy tales that are happening. And one involves Selma Hayek, who plays this queen who can't have children. So her husband, who's the king, played by John C. Riley, they seek the help from this necromancer. Oh, my. And the necromancer tells John C. Riley, hey, you have to kill this giant ocean monster and cut out its heart. And Selma Hayek, the queen, has to eat this heart. Wow. And then she will become pregnant. Okay. But <laughs> a life will then be lost. Oh. Yes. And so, whose? We don't know. Well, I'll tell you who. John C. <laughs> Riley, basically. The king. Oh, he's fucked. He goes into the it's so cool. He goes into the depths of the ocean and he kills this like giant sea creature and you see it. I don't know if it was a puppet, I have no idea. But it was hmm. it's really cool. He kills it and they drag it out, then he cuts out its heart and it's this huge beating heart. Oh my god. And the next scene is Selma Hayek eating this huge sea monster heart. And the poster one of the posters for this movie is just her. It's a white background and she's in this black dress and she's eating this huge <laughs> heart. Wow. Yeah. It's really cool. It's very, oh very like stylish and, and fun. But then there's other a couple other stories that are in the, the film as well. But this is adult. This is an adult I was fairy ask. tale. There's okay. a lot of nudity in it. Okay. If you look on the parental advisory on IMDb, it's like nudity severe, <laughs> violence <laughs> and gore severe. So yeah, there it's not for kids uh, oh God, at all. Watch this. But where, I thought it was a fun watch. It? I rented it on iTunes. 
Okay. Okay, Helen, what is up and coming for Selma? Okay, so this year, there's a film that's supposed to be coming out. We'll see if it actually does. supposed to be coming out in, in August. The Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So sequel. sequel to The Hitman's Bodyguard, which I haven't seen. I don't know if either one of you saw it. No. Nope. Not really my, my <laughs> cup of tea. Uh, maybe other, somebody else's. Um, <laughs> um, and then we have The Eternals. Yes, I was so excited mm. when she was announced as part of that cast. Yeah. I have to say, like, this is being directed by Chloe Zhao. Yeah. Mm. So I actually might see this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm also just really interested to see how she directs a Marvel film. Mm-hmm. Kind of wild, uh, eh? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's a big um, jump. Yeah. It is, yeah. From Nomadland to the Eternals. <laughs> yeah. <gasps> oh my God, she's in House of Gucci with Gaga. She She'd is? be good in that. Yeah, and Jared Leto what? and Jeremy Irons. I didn't see that. And Pacino and Adam Driver. Yeah, it's just, I, well, maybe, I didn't see it when I looked earlier either. I think that literally just happened right now. You guys, breaking news. Finger on the pulse as per usual. <laughs> um, oh, that's really exciting. Mm-hmm. All right, guys, okay. there's only one way to end this in-focus Selma Hayek, and that's by playing a fun little game of Mary Fuck Kill with her mm-hmm. sexy filmography. Mm-hmm. Edison, why don't you start us off? What film do you want to marry? I think I am going to marry From Dusk Till Dawn. Like, it mm-hmm. is, I mean, maybe you know, a violent, crazy marriage, but... This film is mid-90s campy horror extravaganza that does still hold up, and it's just super fun. Mm. So, yeah, I'm, I'm going to marry that. How about you, Helen? I'm going to marry a film that came out a few years ago called Beatrice at Dinner. Mm. Uh, this is a great watch. I, I'm, I'm not necessarily marrying the subject matter or any character within the film, uh, but the film as a whole, I think, is, you know, this could have been another potential hidden gem for Sinclair to cover in this mm-hmm. segment. But I highly recommend this film. And it's a great, great, great role for her. She's wonderful mm-hmm. in this movie. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I yeah. remember this getting a lot of buzz at the time, but I hadn't actually seen it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sinclair? Well, I'm going to marry the faculty. Yes, amazing. <laughs> you would. My crush, Josh Hartnett. Yeah, I I loved this movie when it came out. It's such a good throwback to the yeah. faculty. Selma Hayek's the teacher who she's like sick all the time. And mm, then she gets yes. taken over by the aliens. And she's really great in it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Edison, what film do you want to fuck? Okay, so like Salma Hayek, as we have discussed, ad nauseum is insanely sexy and absolutely everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm going to have to go with Savages for this one because oh, f- of my husband, Aaron, Aaron Taylor Johnson. Fuck, I forgot about Savages. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's, that's my fuck as well. <laughs> Damn it. Yeah, I mean, that is a dead sexy movie. And yeah. <laughs> Sorry, this film is... This is just, yeah, it's a very sexy movie, but it's also Aaron Taylor Johnson, Taylor Kitsch, who I love, Blake Lively, super hot, Sam Hyatt. Like, what? Yeah, Yeah. it's got something for everyone, for sure. Except for a good story. Well, yeah, the movie itself is not great. (laughs) Who cares? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm going to fuck from dusk till dawn. Fair. I think it's George Clooney's sexiest part, to be honest. I like him the best in that. Mm. And then, yeah, just the the Python dance. I mean, yeah. it's really such iconic cinema. Yeah. Mm. Okay, Edison, you have to kill one. So I'll have to kill Ask the Sunset from 2006 with her and Colin Farrell. So I was, <laughs> go- I was trying to think of one to kill, and I was going through her filmography. I f- literally forgot that this movie existed and totally <laughs> forgot that I had seen it. But I actually remember watching it while I was in Korea, teaching English in Korea mm. and being so disappointed and being like, oh, this movie's garbage. Mm. And I didn't want to kill any of her other movies. So I was like, mm. OK, this will be the one I'll kill. How about you, Helen? Well, I mean, 
if you had recently rewatched Wild Wild West, that would have been your choice. Um, <laughs> no, I would have kept it for is... that scene of Big Willie's Big Willie. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> um, <laughs> that's not enough for me to want to keep this movie alive. Uh, Wild Wild West is dead and gone. Sinclair? Oh, I'm killing grown-ups. Like, Adam oh, Sandler actually thinks we believe that his wife is Selma Hayek. That's any Adam Sandler film. That's what I mean. It is so <laughs> obnoxious. And he, yeah. you know, he's acting like his wife, Selma Hayek, is just such a nag and a shrew. <laughs> Give me a break. <laughs> Goodbye, grownups. Dead and gone. That's fair. Well, this has been another episode of Talk Movie to Me. If you would like to get in touch with us, our email is talkmovietome at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at talkmovietome. Tweet at us at TMTM Podcast. Rate and review us on iTunes. Our website is talkmovietomepodcast.com. And please become a Patreon member if you aren't already. Patreon.com slash talkmovietome. I'm Helen. I'm Miss Sinclair. And I'm Edison. Thank you for listening. Ugh. <laughs>